Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this iconic show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're not quite watching Doctor Who, or we are, and it's a bizarre alternate universe. <laughs> it's the movie that was put out early on to capitalize on the success of Doctor Who and the Daleks, and so naturally enough, it's called Doctor Who and the Daleks. They wanted to make sure the audience knew what they were getting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, and to me, this movie is an abomination, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who thinks this movie shows how Doctor Who should have been. Hello, no, Guy. It's a blatant lie. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just going to say right up front, this movie is what the show should have been according to the BBC, right? It's what people mm. would have expected. It is a show for kids... And I'm just going to say right up front, what we get to see is what could have been Doctor Who, something that would have lasted a few episodes or a year or two, and we never mm -hmm. would have heard of it. And and I think actually what it shows is the brilliance of the TV show. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to come back to that as we go through here, how the TV show is so much better <laughs> than a movie that had more money and time and everything. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a recurring thing I noticed throughout this movie, for all the budget it must have had, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't a huge budget. It was probably the smallest budget they could get away <laughs> with. But uh, it probably at least had more budget than right. the TV show. And uh, and it's been a while now since we watched those episodes, <laughs> but I can still recall quite a bit about them. And uh, there are a lot of ways in which I felt that the TV show did it better. Yeah. And to be fair to us, it's not like we were easy on the TV show. I mean, you remember pointing out <laughs> when they were in the caves and, and one of them, like, you know, took off a chunk of the styrofoam from the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the show certainly had its, uh, its limitations, but uh, uh, this movie does, too. <laughs> so, you know... Listen on and you'll hear us kick around this movie. <laughs> Maybe that's fun. But if it's like the fa your favorite movie from childhood, you may want to uh, uh, skip on to our next episode. <laughs> uh, so a little bit of context. You know, when Doctor Who kicked off, the Daleks was the second story. And the Daleks, of course, is what made Doctor Who famous and, and made it survive. And the kids in the UK were instantly spending all their playground time being Daleks and, uh, you know, exterminating each other and all of that. <laughs> now, of course, <laughs> as in the uh, the rolled doll uh, controversy we're in right now, we would, you know, change that to uh, something slightly less uh, uh, disturbing than exterminating. <laughs> <laughs> but the powers that be decided, okay, there's this popular TV show. Let's make a movie out of it. So, again, this was supposed to be a TV show for children, and they decided with this movie, no, it's it's way too much for adults. Let's make it much more for children. <laughs> so, uh, it's kind of weird because usually you expect the movie to be the more hard-edged thing, right, to get kind of a wider mm -hmm. audience, but that's not the approach. Oh, yeah. Now, if you had just told me the, the pitch for this, right, with Peter Cushing as the doctor – Mm -hmm. I'd be like, wow, that sounds interesting. You know, Peter Cushing did all these Hammer horror films. And, of course, then probably about, about 10 years after he did this, he got probably the most famous role he ever had, which was playing, um, was it Tarkov or what's his name? Gr in Star Wars? Grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah. 
So we get to see Grand Moff Who in this uh, movie. <laughs> yeah, rather different portrayal. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he was excited to do this because he was tired of doing horror films all the time, and so this was a chance to do something different. Hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> anything else you want to comment on before we head in here? I think most of what we think about the movie will emerge as we talk about it. <laughs> okay, so let's head into the first half. So first we get these really bizarre credits. and This is like an <laughs> early Bond film with this sort of 70s multicolor <laughs> light show and a funky font. <laughs> yeah, and the music, uh, the, to me, the music reminds me, it's like a less... Less bombastic version of the theme to Police Squad. <laughs> I haven't seen that since I was a kid, so I don't recall. But yeah, I can and. You know, right off, we get something very offensive, which is Peter Cushing is credited as Doctor Who. <laughs> Not the doctor, <laughs> yeah. but Doctor Who. So here we go. Now, of course, I know you probably approve of this because you <laughs> like it. I whenever did until I saw this movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, I did notice that. And Ian, well, the, the pseudo Ian, he refers to him as Doctor Who, addresses mm. him as that. So that's the... In the movies, that's the canonical name of the Doctor. Right. And I should have mentioned earlier, I've tr before this, I have tried to watch this film two or three times, and every time I would get about three minutes in, and I would get so pissed off that I would stop. So we'll, we'll see what that's about here. So first of all, after hearing you know that Peter Cushing is Doctor Who, we open on a room with a little girl who will turn out to be the new Susan, and she's reading a book, uh, Physics for the Inquiring Mind. <laughs> and uh, I think this movie's subtitle should be An Earthly Child. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a woman reading The Science of Science. And then there's a doddering old man reading the trashy news of the day. And the doddering old man turns out to be Doctor Who. Yeah, it's like I think he's reading like a Boy Scout newspaper or something like that. Yeah, so. I couldn't tell what it was. It seemed, you know, I think the idea was that it was somewhat, you know, silly. And yeah. the clock chimes, and Barbara, who now instead of being a teacher who meets Susan and all that, is the granddaughter of the doctor. So I don't because mm. she refers to him as grandfather, which I guess right. means he's the great grandfather of Susan. We never quite well. That's Actually, we don't know what. Sisters. Yeah, I guess they're sisters, but she, but Barbara is way older than Susan. Yeah, Barbara's got some big hair too. Oh <laughs> God, it really uh, sticks up. Big hair and very bright, like purplish pants, which I'm going to talk <laughs> about as we go along. Because one of the things here is this is an early color film, right? That one of the things that they mm -hmm. sort of publicized was this is Doctor Who in color, while the show was in black and white. And one of the things we'll see as we go along is that the, they did not understand how to do color, right? They're just throwing <laughs> color up. So literally later on, so normally one of the things you do with characters, right, is you think about what the set is going to look like, and then you put the characters in clothing, mm -hmm. 
that is going to differentiate them from the set. It's going to stand out, right? Mm, yeah. So they have Barbara in hot pink pants. And what do they do? Half the walls in this movie, and I'm not kidding, are hot pink. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and other yeah. characters, too. It's like whatever they're wearing, they're putting that same color all over the place so that they bleed into the walls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and these, uh, these walls, while we're on the subject, um, <laughs> have you ever seen Twin Peaks? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, like the red curtains yeah, in, the, yeah. in the lodge. And the, these are like the pink version of that <laughs> along the walls. Yeah, but you don't want to give people the impression that this is anywhere near the quality of Twin Peaks. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that. <laughs> yeah, but that is kind of the color set we're talking about. And they're all wearing clothes that are similar, so they just bleed into the walls. It's bizarre. <laughs> Okay, so trying to get back to the show. And I'm going to say one of the reasons, but about this point, I would turn this off every time I tried to watch it, is that when it turns out that Susan is Susan, that this little girl is Susan, and that Barbara is the granddaughter, I'm just like, I'm out. I can't, you know, I can't <laughs> do this because I love the Susan character, not the screaming Susan, but the kind of Avengers-like <laughs> Susan we were supposed to get and that we you know, saw mm-hmm. glimpses of. And to see her turned into the granddaughter or great-granddaughter and to see Barbara turned into this airheaded woman, one of the things we'll see here, I guess I can't help it. We're just going to proceed, you know, saying everything here. Barbara in this has no presence whatsoever. She makes no difference in the show. She could be dropped out. It would make no difference whatsoever, (laughs) which is so offensive because Barbara in the series is this incredibly uh, important character. Oh, yeah. She's the history teacher who knows lots about history. Yeah, and, you know, she's the god and the Aztecs and all this. And this Barbara is this young woman who's dating Ian and, you know, is just an airhead and with her big poofy hair. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) And Ian is an airhead, too. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll get into that here. He's he's no knight of Jaffa, that's for sure. Oh, boy. Okay, well, we should actually get to the story. It's so hard. It's so hard. Okay. So the clock chimes, and Barbara gets up knowing that her boyfriend, Ian, you know, not the, you know, not the science teacher at school or whatever, but her boy- colleague, Ian. Yeah, her boyfriend, Ian, is going to be showing up. The doctor's never met him before. Barbara asks Susan to open the door, and now we get, and then, oh my God, it's just, it's so offensive if you know the show. So <laughs> we start this whole thing where Ian is leaning up against the door, so when Susan opens it, he falls in. And the whole point, and we see this just over and over again, is Ian is a complete klutz, and everything, every impact he has on the story is because he's a klutz. It's like this is a Marx Brothers story. And again, oh, this yeah. is so different from the Ian of the show, who is our physical hero, right? And and together and smart and a science teacher. And this guy is just a freaking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he's a he's a buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's see here. Um, so I guess Hollywood isn't in Britain, but they managed <laughs> to give this movie the real Hollywood treatment. Yeah, yeah. 
And just to, you know, reinforce the fool idea. So Barbara has gone upstairs to make herself up or whatever. And Ian has brought a gift in for her, which at first the doctor thinks is for him, right? It's like a box of chocolates. And Ian's like, no, that's for, for Barbara. It's got the soft center. And we don't – actually, it makes no sense at all because we don't see him put this down. But somehow he puts the box of chocolates down on a chair. Then he sits in the chair and collapses them. And, and you know, then there's the thing about it being the soft center. But it makes no sense at all. Like, when did he put them there and why would he put them there and then sit on the – it just uh. – Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they didn't set that gag up real well. No, think. it's not like he gave it to the doctor and the doctor put it on the chair and then he sat on the chair. It just, you know, it makes no sense at all. <laughs> anyway, he starts this. So Ian, having, you know, sat on the box of chocolates, now goes to sit in a different chair and the doctor freaks out and tells him that he almost sat on a super ionized pre-oscillator, which is part of his new invention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the doctor now refers to Ian as Harold, which at least I'll give them that that is in the tradition of the show where, where you know, William Hartnell kept calling him a different name, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Although usually yeah, it was his last true. name, but yeah. Right. He'd get the, get the last name wrong. <laughs> and then the doctor reintroduces, reintroduces himself to Ian. And so also, I mean, we've been talking about how silly Ian is. You know, I love Peter Cushing, but he is playing this character as this absolute doddering fool. Yeah, there's uh, no now and then he seems to have a little more presence of mind, but uh, you know he's he's he doesn't have the sharp edges that Hartnell does. That's for damn sure. And I'm going to argue, if this is how Hartnell had played the character, we wouldn't have Doctor Who today. I mean, probably. I think it just shows how important his role was in creating this character. Because literally, Mm -hmm. Peter Cushing is walking around sort of stiff-legged as, I don't know, some kind of weird um, science guy thing and and doddering fool guy and the whole time. And he's just this, you know, bumbling little, uh, whatever. And it's (laughs) it's not like Columbo where, oh, underneath he has this hardcore and all that. No, he's just this doddering old guy, you know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, in addition to uh, all the characters being different than they are in the show, um, the very setup is different because here he's an inventor. He's yeah. not this weird alien like Susan is. Uh, he's just some guy who invents things. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a doddering old guy who invents things. And so he had mentioned. You know, Ian almost sat on the last part of his invention. So they go outside and the doctor introduces Ian to, they don't call it the TARDIS, it's TARDIS, you know. Mm. And they define it, of course, like from the show, time and relative dimension and space. And Ian does the classic thing of walking inside. Now, one thing you notice, that they do have one effect that's different than the show, which is whenever they go into the TARDIS, the, the windows light up, <laughs> which they don't oh, yeah. in the TV show. So that's one little uh, extra thing, extra effect they have. Yeah, but then through the windows, it looks like the normal size yeah. uh, police box. Yeah, so and so... That doesn't work. Yeah, Ian does the classic walk inside and says how large it is. But this is uh, so. Here is again where I'm going to say how brilliant the designers for the TV show were. Right? I mean, even in the pilot, 
the inside of the TARDIS was what the TARDIS is today, right? I mean, it's a really mm -hmm. pretty impressive, surprising-looking space with the console and the walls with those round dolls in them and everything, right? It's, I mean, it's hugely distinctive. It defines well, yeah, the whole show. I, I commented on those, I think, in the very first episode we did. Uh, you know that they were you know had a very distinctive look those roundels um, and of course I was pleased that I noticed that one of the walls they were actually painted on but, uh, <laughs> yeah exactly. you know, it was still a it's still a good effect yeah and know. the console is you know classic and iconic you know and you can understand oh, how sure. this would be how he'd be controlling the ship what do we get here we get like a gymnasium room with some walls you know flat walls and somebody put a bunch of electronic looking equipment and wires around like somebody i mean the designers had no freaking clue what to do right they just put some screens and machines on the wall and wires and there's no there's no theme to this it has n absolutely zero sensibility of the tardis there's no console um it's just a room a set you know in a gym <laughs> that yeah, they're sitting in it's it's bare walls with a bunch of gadgetry stuck to them randomly, and then right. just random wires hanging all over the place like an unorganized server room. You know, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, and it's just wires, the designers put no thought into it, and they didn't reference the TV show at all. I mean, they you would think they hadn't seen the TV show; it just has nothing to do with it, and it. And you would think if you'd seen that, that you would want to emulate the console and the distinctive walls. And anyway, I'm just, you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of things. You know, I, I think I sent you an email in the past week or so where I, I mentioned it just baffles me that so often it happens that you take a property that's already popular. You know, people are going to want to come see it in the theater. And then whoever's making the movie thinks, well, I know what the audience really <laughs> wants, you know, even right. though they already know what they want. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, ten, you know, again, technically the TV show should be the more childish one, right? Should be trying to reach the widest audience possible. And in this mm. case with the movie, they've decided, let's tone this down. Let's make it more childish. Let's try to, you know, it's like, that's not what a movie <laughs> is for. I mean, you know. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. But like I said, what I what I came to after just being so thoroughly disappointed is to realize I think the the great thing about this movie is it just it shows what Doctor Who would have been 99% of the time and it's only because of like the producer Verity Lambert and the original director Warris Hussein and you know Hartnell but also I mean mm -hmm. all of them right I mean Barbara sure, and Ian and, and Susan, and Susan. every Susan. single one of them played a serious character. They did not ham it up or treat it like, a, you know, the way they do in this movie. Hmm. It's just, it's almost, it's hard to explain like how, you know, well, it makes the, even the bad stuff of the early episodes so much better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think so, that may be because... Uh, that may be why I've never had the courage to watch any of the TV or movie versions of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, God. Because I've read the book so many right. times that I'm just afraid that it's going to appall me. Well, that's a very good point. And what I would say is it's worth watching the TV version. It's actually very similar to this. The TV version has a lot going for it and, you know, is very faithful to the show, et cetera. The mm. movie with... Um, 
uh, what's the name from the original office? Who's a great actor, but is terrible. Do not watch it. It will. I mean, it's like watching mm. this. It you know, it will just hurt your feelings for the. But I would argue the TV show is actually probably worth watching. Now, I haven't seen the TV okay. show in decades, so and who you know that would be a perfect one for us to check out at some point, you know, that along with the five thousand sure. other things we need to check out. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so now we spent like half an hour bitching about this. Let's see if we can get past the first <laughs> two minutes of this. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Um, so we're on the gym floor set that is supposed to be a TARDIS. It looks nothing like the TARDIS. It's just a room with some equipment in it. it I'm going to say gym floor. This is like walking into the AV room in your high school. Right? <laughs> It really, it really is a, I mean, maybe they were going for the effect of a project in progress, you know, this was, it hadn't even been tested yet. Yeah. And so forth. But, but still, I mean, even in the fifties and sixties, you know, the early days of science fiction and video, um, I can recall movies using much, much, uh, more impressive sets for yeah. science fiction. There's no things. vision whatsoever here. And then, Susan, now, here's one thing I will say, even though I'm offended with them changing Susan to this this little girl, she is the best actor in this, and honestly, <laughs> if they had just made this a story about her and got rid of all the rest of the characters, it would have been so much better. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the 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 actress herself isn't bad. I mean, right. she's, she's well. She handles the technical jargon, and she's and she's not hamming it up the way the adult actors are. I think that's a huge difference to me, right? She's taking it seriously. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so she explains to Ian that space expands to accommodate the time necessary to encompass its dimension. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but you know, that's fine. That's a good science fiction explanation. And the doctor says this, the TARDIS has been in the works for years. And Ian is privileged to be the first who is the first visitor to their time and space machine. He sort of leaves Barbara out of this. <laughs> I mean, I guess she might have visited it before, but I assume she hasn't. Now we get, you know, so the whole idea here is Ian is this klutz and every impact that Ian has in the story is him being a klutz. So he like falls backwards and accidentally starts the TARDIS off. And again, there's no console, so there's just this sort of um, kind of like a, a game controller thing on a pylon that he pushes, and it causes the TARDIS to take off. But And this, again, is weird, and I know you're not a huge fan of what you call the lawnmower sound of the TARDIS, <laughs> but... Well, it's it's distinctive. It's just grating. Yeah, they have no sound, right? They have no right. idea of like the camera shaking or anything. It's just like, oh, he pushed this button, and now the TARDIS has apparently changed location, and nothing happens. I mean, it's it's so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and so, anyway, you know, the TARDIS has apparently now taken off, even though we can't tell. And the doctor lectures Ian about how he's just screwed everything up by doing this because they don't know where they are in time and space. So unlike in the show where the doctor can't control the TARDIS, in this case, the idea is that Ian sort of had, you know, set it off randomly. So that's why they don't know where they're where they're at. Right. And, you know, Peter Cushing as the doctor says, we could be anywhere in the universe at any time. And then he claps his hands together and says, well, that's exciting, isn't it? And he, that's... If William Hartnell had done that, it, that would be a really good line. 
it's it's just not here. It just sits there. It doesn't <laughs> do anything. So Ian, you know, as he did in the original uh, show, he denies the situation and. You know, he says, oh, of course, we're not somewhere else in the universe. And then he opens the TARDIS door and the joke's on him. And it turns mm-hmm. out they're in an alien landscape, which is very green <laughs> with trees. And this is probably as good a time as any to mention that the movie follows the story arc uh, of the TV show pretty closely after, you know, the initial jarring surprises that we've run into um you know there were several plot points i was wondering if they'd leave in and uh they touched on the ones i was thinking of Mm -hmm. so uh um it's very close in many ways to the script yeah there's almost nothing they left out in fact we may just you know speed through some of those people can go listen to our original coverage of the daleks which was you know a pretty long episode for the full story so they, you know, the doctor realizes between the dirt here and the trees that this is a petrified jungle. Ian immediately wants to go home, but the doctor and Susan want to investigate, and the doctor talks Ian and Barbara into going along with them. And now, and this again is right out of the original, Susan, I mean, it's not quite the way it happened there, but Susan finds this delicate flower, which Ian manages to crush because it turns out to be kind of like a a glass flower. Uh, Ian crushes it when Barbara yells out because she's seen a monster. Again, it's just, I don't get it. But everything Ian does must be motivated by the fact that he's a klutz. So the doctor and Susan bump into a tree. The tree drops a branch. The branch knocks Ian into the monster, which turns out to be some kind of like, you know, plaster monster that breaks apart. Yeah, well, it was a petrified yeah. uh, lizard, and and as I, I I could be I could be remembering this wrong, but I think the monster in the TV show was actually scarier than this. Oh, one. I agree, I agree. I think one of the again, I think this shows how brilliant the designers were of the TV show because they had like ten cents compared to this, right? And they made <laughs> better stuff, you know. And the places felt like places. So when I talk about the TARDIS set interior. Again, it just feels like they're on a gym floor. That's, you can, that's what it feels like. In the original show and even the pilot, when you were in the TARDIS, it felt like you were in a spaceship. It felt like you were in mm-hmm. a new place, even though they had problems keeping the door closed and even, you know, even though they had production problems. Yeah. It was a unique space that was different. Similarly, in the TV show, the jungle, even though we made fun, you know, we've made repeated fun, for example, and they, they do... Uh, references here where Susan was like running in the jungle and, you know, interns are slapping her in the face with branches. (laughs) It still felt more like a space than this, even though they have a lot larger studio space for the jungle, you know, Mm -hmm. the TV jungle felt more realistic than this, I would argue. So I I think they just did an amazing job on the TV show compared to, you know, the, the movie and the budget that the movie had and just how there was just no imagination in the movie. Yeah, I mean, there a lot of the visual stuff, if they had just lifted it from the TV show, that would have been ideal because there was a lot of good uh, visual well, stuff. Well, and here's a great example. So what's the next thing that happens after Ian, you know, breaks apart the monster? 
Susan sees the distant city. And if you recall us mm. talking about this, they had this mm-hmm. extensive city and with models, and you could debate how good it looked or whatever, but, you know, they put a lot of work into it in the TV show. What do they have here? They have one building, <laughs> one square oh, yeah. building. <laughs> yeah, we get this We get this. This long shot of, like, uh, it looks like it could be a, a warehouse or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the original, it was an alien city. Mm-hmm. It was... Uh, yeah, again, just <laughs> they took the wrong path almost everywhere that they could have made a <laughs> yeah. choice. I mean, they so. could have just taken the same footage and inserted it. It would have been better. Yeah. Uh, so Ian and Barbara feel this place is dangerous and they want to leave. And Ian says, Doctor Who. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel we should get out of this place. And the doctor feels they should explore the city, which is true to the original. But he agrees to go back. And as they head back, and this happened in the original, but it's, they do it so badly. <laughs> so Susan gets distracted and wanders off because she sees another one of these like glass flowers. And she gets the glass flower. And then someone taps her on the shoulder. And the fu- <laughs> It's so clearly like, oh, we have an intern off screen who's going to tap her on the shoulder and then pull his arm back. It's so unrealistic. (laughs) It's just bizarre. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, someone taps her on the shoulder and then they're back in the TARDIS. And as in the TV show, the doctor doesn't believe her that someone tapped her on the shoulder. But then there's a knock on the door Mm -hmm. and the doctor checks the scanner, but they don't see anyone outside. They decide it's time to leave, and as in, they decide it's time for the TARDIS to take off, and they give Ian the honor of taking them back, and he goes to that weird, you know, game controller exercise bar thingy. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever seen a pallet jack. I, I've worked with them in a <laughs> couple different jobs, but but it's basically a little flat-wheeled thing that you lift up pallets with. And there's a handle that you use for steering it and pushing it that just sort mm. of sticks up, yeah. almost goes down to the floor. And that's kind of what this the control lever is for the, this TARDIS is is like. It's just a long, you know, maybe chest-high lever coming out of the floor. Right. But when Ian uses this, nothing happens. You know, the TARDIS doesn't move or anything. Not that you would know because it didn't make any noise or anything the last time. But... And so the doctor checks the fault locator. Now, here again is a difference in how hard they tried on the TV show. The fault locator in the TV show, it wasn't really great, but it was an entire wall that they put a whole lot of design into, right? Mm-hmm. In this movie, it is this one little cone thingy stuck to the wall that has it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> You know, where where in the TV show, it was this whole wall of computer readouts and the doctor was looking at the computer readouts and everything. But here it's just this cone on the wall and that's the fault locator. And he says that, you know, K7 has failed, which is the fluid link. And um, the fluid link is true to the original story. Mm-hmm. The fluid link is missing some mercury, but he has some mercury in his lab. But oops, they don't have his lab available. <laughs> so he says they'll just have to try the city. Now. This is 80% true to the TV show. The difference here is that 
we knew we as viewers knew at this point that the doctor was lying, right? That right. I think I think we saw him fiddling around with it, right? Something. And he was making an excuse to claim that they didn't have mercury in the movie. We don't see that at all. So later on, it comes up and he's like, "Oh, I lied," but it it doesn't have the same impact because we didn't see him lie. Yeah. I, I think the doctor in the show was intended to come off as a little more crafty and maybe slightly uh, you know, uh, sketchy sometimes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, because they need Mercury, they venture out of the TARDIS, and then they see a tiny little box, and eh, I won't go on about it. I still think it was better than the TV show, but it's pretty similar, you know, and they're worried that it's a bomb. And we, we talked in the original mm. how this is a reflection of this show being done you know, in the couple of decades after World War II, where, especially in Britain, you could worry about unexploded bombs, right? And so right. in the U.S., if you came across a little box that's about the size of a pencil box, you would never think, oh, it might be a bomb. But right. in the U.K., because they'd gone through World War II, you know, on their doorstep and everything, um, they did think that way. And, and that's replicated here. Although, again, not nearly as well. You don't really understand why they're afraid of this little tiny box, et cetera. It's better done in the TV show, but nonetheless. Yeah, it's not like uh, in in neither case. No, nobody said uh, you know. Oh, it might be an unexploded bomb. <laughs> right. You're just supposed. To. But here, Ian, when he finally uh, gets a hold of it, he's or he doesn't get a hold of no, it. No, Susan does. Susan, yeah. But but he just like panics and goes stumbling off into something or other. You know. Right, and, and then Susan runs flees. up and open it because she's sort of the more uh, practically minded person. And it turns out yeah. to be vials of chemicals, but we don't know what these chemicals are. So they leave them behind and they go to the city, but, you know, they're kind of running out of steam and they're getting sort of tired and and sickly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, true to the TV show, the doctor suggests they all take different directions to find the mercury they need because <laughs> we're in an alien city on an alien planet. Let's all split up. <laughs> Now we get one of these Marx Brothers things, and I appreciate what they're trying to do. They just don't execute it right. So everybody else <laughs> is able to enter one of the automatic doors, but Ian can't. Every time he tries to enter the door, it stays closed. And we have this whole sort of Marx Brothers thing where he tries to get it to open, and hilarity ensues over and over, but actually there's no hilarity. <laughs> it's just not done well at all. Yeah, it's just every time he sits down, the door opens right. because the thing he's sitting on is the trigger for it. So it's, right. And then for yeah. no reason, the doctor and Susan come by and, you know, because they theoretically already got into one of the doors, but they help him get in. <laughs> and meanwhile, Barbara's making her way through a corridor. And this was, you know, this is the incredibly classic point in the original, right, where she encounters a Dalek and we end that episode with mm, uh, with yeah. all we see is like the uh, the plunger coming at her right we don't know what it is and this is the point where i made a note again she has bright pink pants and uh, so again i'm going to say the architecture in the tv show was so much better it was alien it had these weird triangular doors in this show everything's yeah. square it's just normal and also Again, it's Keller, so they have to have Keller. So they just put pink on the walls for no reason. And she's wearing pink pants. So she's bleeding into the walls. It makes no <laughs> sense. Yeah. And I was very disappointed in the doorways because I thought they were very clever in the TV show because they were like the side profile of a Dalek. You know, they were custom-made doors for Daleks. Yeah. 
So uh, something happens. The crew hears her scream, and they come after her. Now, unlike the original, so in the TV show, you know, a Dalek approaches her. In the movie, that doesn't happen. We, you know, she screams. We don't see anything. But the rest of the crew ends up in a fancy control room. And it's funny because they did try to do something fancy here, which is they have this really big rotating computerist thing where, you know, they can rotate it and each portion of it has different computer things. But it's kind of hurt by the fact that it's all wood. (laughs) It's like the Daleks (laughs) to this wood computer system. I don't know. I don't don't understand it. But. Uh, maybe it's petrified wood. Yeah. <laughs> but that reminds me, I think it's somewhere along in here, where you see some other walls that have these decorations hanging on them. <laughs> and they're the cheapest looking. It's They're sheets of mylar, you know, yeah. the silver. It's literally balloons. you go to a party store and you get some mylar and you pin it up on the wall. And that's what they did. <laughs> and they do it over and over again. Like, oh, it's the future. We'll put some mylar on the wall. <laughs> you know, what it reminds you, to be honest to the show, is it reminds you of some of the decorations in, oh, the, uh, what was the train nation one after this? Keys of Marinus? Yeah, in the Keys of Marinus, right, where they had literally five cents to do it, right? And so they had, like, some plastic on the walls to be snow. It was kind of like this. But, again, the TV show had, like, five cents in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And even then, I'm going to argue that Keys of Marinus still had more of a sense of place. Like, you still felt you were in a snowy place (laughs) or in a cabin or whatever, where you never feel that in this movie. (laughs) Uh, okay, let's see. So the doctor realizes that the wall has a Geiger counter and the atmosphere is polluted. This is again right out of the TV show. And now the doctor admits that it's just so anticlimactic. It's not. The doctor says to Ian, oh, I lied. And, you know, the fluid link was fine. I just wanted to see the city. In the TV show, this is dramatic, right? And and in here, it's just like, oh, the wacky doctor says he lied. Okay, whatever. <laughs> So they turn to leave, and in the movie, this is where we see the Daleks, right? And they're surrounded by Daleks. And one of the things I think the movie did that was dumb is that they clearly wanted to make so, – so one of the you know limitations of the TV show is they had a very, very small number of Daleks. Mm-hmm. So you would just have two or three in a room, and this was supposed to represent you know these armies of Daleks. So in the movie, they clearly wanted to make it clear, we have a lot of Daleks. So the very first time you see them, there's like 10 Daleks around them. But it's the wrong approach because what you want to do is introduce one Dalek that's very mysterious and then maybe mm. later on have a lot of Daleks. But a lot yeah. of Daleks in your first scene with them doesn't do anything. And it doesn't give you that idea of one mysterious, powerful Dalek, right? Yeah. And it hadn't occurred to me, but I, I think they you're probably right. They probably spent most of the effect budget mm-hmm. on the Dalek models. Right. And now, and again, we get this other difference where Ian tries to run, which is right out of the TV show. But in the TV show, they shoot him with their negative film thingy, right? Which is pretty dramatic, right? Everything goes white. Oh, yeah. Here, yeah. it's literally just compressed air. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's a there's a there's a little visible steam or smoke right. or something like a fire extinguisher. Or something. Right, that's what it looks like a fire extinguisher. But that compared to that negative thing, it's just like why the hell wouldn't they replicate that? It made no sense at all. That's so much more dramatic than oh, I'm shooting a fire extinguisher. <laughs> oh yeah, and we're gonna see over and over again. It's the fire extinguisher effect, you know. <laughs> um, so the Daleks search the doctor and they take the fluid link from him. Meanwhile, Barbara is in a cell because she was captured earlier. She doesn't notice the obvious camera that's watching her. The crew enters the cell. And meanwhile, we see the Daleks talking and they realize the crew is suffering from radiation sickness. Again, right out of the TV show. And they're watching and listening to the crew in their cell, you know, on a screen. As the crew discusses the vials that they found outside of the TARDIS. And then the Daleks immediately come in because they know that these vials are, you know, radiation cures from the Thals, and their feeling is if they can get the radiation cures, they'll be able to leave their city because they are currently confined to their city. They can't leave the city because of the radiation that happened because of a war. Once they know the crew has access to these vials of, you know, that will cure radiation, they want that. So they immediately enter the cell and says that one of them must go back and get the drugs and like in the TV show, Ian tries to get up to do it, but he falls over. And then Susan decides to do it. But in the TV show, it makes sense because Susan is an adult. <laughs> Here, it makes no sense because Susan is a little kid. And Barbara is perfectly capable of doing this as an adult. And Barbara doesn't offer to do it. <laughs> it makes no <laughs> sense at all. Yeah, and then I had my note here about the quarter. As Susan goes on, the quarters are decorated with the uh, holiday package wrapping. Oh yeah, <laughs> the mylar. Yeah, they're just these little loops. They did. They did put different colors on mm -hmm. one side of the mylar, at least. So mm -hmm. there's, there's that. So Susan is taken outside, and there's this huge rock face outside, and she slides down it. And there's an actual behind-the-scenes story on this. I mean. It's actually a pretty steep thing, you can tell, and she was worried about mm -hmm. hurting herself. And uh, the director said, like, if she could do it, he'd, you know, give her a cookie or something. So she <laughs> went down and did it. Similarly, he would give her um, cookies or give her appreciation if she did a shot in one take, and, and she was actually good at it. As I said, I think yeah. even though Peter Cushing, you know, is a good actor, she was the best actor in this whole thing, and it didn't surprise <laughs> me that, that she could do it in one, one take more often than other people. The Daleks watch her progress, you know, as she returns to the TARDIS on the video screen. And and this is going to make no sense whatsoever because one Dalek asks the other, says, if she returns with the radiation drugs, should we give the prisoners some of them as we said we would to save their lives? And the other Dalek says, no, they will have no value then. We should allow them to die. Now... Okay, that's fine. That's a perfectly valid Dalek thing to say. But as we're going to see, when Susan gets back, this goes out the window. They give them the drugs. It, it makes no <laughs> sense at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, she does have a spare kit that yeah. the guy gives her. But, but, but know, yeah. still, you know, they could use that kit for more testing. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So Susan, the little girl's running through the forest, and we did get a call back to the TV show where, you know, they have a more extensive forest here because they have a bigger budget, but we do get the kind of slapping branches in her face and all that, so that's fine. And a strangely clad figure follows her, and so all she can see is this kind of weird texture, and she throws dirt at it, and then she manages to get to the TARDIS, and the figure follows her, and the figure opens the TARDIS door, so <laughs> it was in this... Uh, 
story, the thing we've gone on and on about where Susan has said one reason she had to come back to the TARDIS was because the lock had the 32 things and acid would be released and et cetera. But they just <laughs> dropped that out of the movie as they do later in the TV show. And, and you know, this guy's just able to open the TARDIS door. <laughs> and it turns out to be a fabulous member of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. <laughs> <laughs> This is oh, a, Aladon, a Thal, and he has, you know, eye makeup and this really weird oh, wig, as they all do. You know you know who the eye makeup looks like? Uh, Mimi from uh, the Drew Carey show. Yeah, that's Did true. Did you ever yep. see that? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just this bright blue caked on eyeshadow. Yeah, yeah and you notice um, one of the ways that the movie is less adult than the TV show is, you remember the Thals especially the women, but all of them in the TV show, they had these holes in their pants that were, you know, kind of uh, exotic and, and, you know, whatever you want to say. They, they don't do that mm-hmm. here. It's just regular pants. <laughs> they don't expose their <laughs> Although the guys do expose their chest. They're entirely hairless and purple <laughs> chests. <laughs> so. And even his cloak, I, I don't remember exactly oh, what God. the cloak looked like in the TV show, but I remember it being more impressive. Oh, way better. One. It was way better, and it'll come back in later on. But it was a very unique kind of you know thing. Um, and here it's literally just a piece of fabric, where in the TV show it was this sort of plastic thing that had unique characteristics. Yeah, it was way better. Yeah, this is like white fabric with a black camouflage attempted camouflage pattern on it so yep so aladon tells susan that he's the one who left the drugs for them so that box it turned out was radiation drugs she you know she tells him she's supposed to take the drugs back to the daleks but she doesn't trust the daleks so he gives her an extra set of drugs and tells her to hide them and again this is weird because of where this goes which is she returns to the daleks and they immediately investigate her and find the hidden drugs, but then decide to let her use them for the cruise. So, not, you know, first of all, the dogs originally said they would let them die. Hmm. He says, oh, hide these extra drugs. But then the dogs immediately find them. Like, none of this means anything. And some of this is also in the TV show, but it's just stupid Terry Nation stuff. <laughs> So Susan is brought back to the crew's cell, but she now has the cloak from the thaw, which will become important. But we see that the Daleks are listening in, and they talk about the fact that they can now make the drugs themselves, which means they can move outside the city and destroy the Thals. And then a Dalek suggests a trap where they'll invite the Thals to the city for food and then kill them all. And they figure, well... How can we get the Thals to come to the city? Oh, if Susan sends them a letter, which, again, is right out of the TV show, right? So, yeah. So they go to the cell and take Susan out to get her to write this letter. And she, you know, and, and oh, and in the process, they said, we're going to help the Thals, which is what you want us to do. And again, like in the TV show, this causes Ian to realize, oh, they must be listening into us on that big, obvious camera on the wall <laughs> um, because they knew what we were thinking about. So the Daleks dictate a letter to Susan to write to the Thals. And, of course, just like in the TV show, as soon as she's done, they're like, ha-ha, screw you. We're going to, you know, kill everybody. You know, we just needed the letter. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny that they tell her this. (laughs) Yeah, there was no need to tell her that. It just seemed like they were gloating. (laughs) 
So while she's writing the letter, the doctor realizes there's a huge camera in the corner of the wall. It's so big. It's like, wow, there's a camera there. And and Susan actually sees him realizing this because, you know, she's seeing the the screen where he's on. And she hides the pencil that she used for her letter into her pocket, which has a big, well, a big kind of a, a globe on the end of it. Um, and... She's taken back to the cell, and she now kind of mimics to Ian how they can take out the camera, you know, using her pencil. If he, you know, if he puts her up on his shoulders, she can take out the the camera with the pencil. And the Daleks see this happening, and they realize the camera's been taken out, but they decide not to kill the crew for now. (laughs) For no particular reason. They got everything they wanted out of the crew. They got the drugs. (laughs) They got the letter from Susan. These are Daleks, you know. They would just kill these people, but they decide to let him live. Which is convenient for the TV or for the show so that they could continue on. <laughs> and the Thals now receive Susan's letter and they have a debate about, you know, what it is, but eventually decide what could go wrong. It must be true. The Daleks want to give us food. Let's all go and get some food. And they literally, as we'll see later, they're literally all bringing these baskets so they can put food in the baskets and, <laughs> and bring it back. Uh, back in the cell, the doctor now realizes that everything is made of metal. Although, as we said, there's actually an awful lot of wood in the Dalek thing. But in their cell, everything is made of metal. And he realizes that whenever the Daleks move around, you smell something, which is kind of the you know electrostatic smell of them moving around. So it turns out that what's keeping – one of the things – well, it's actually inconsistent scientifically, right? The Daleks say what's keeping them from leaving the city is the radiation. But the doctor determines that they can't. Uh, that they have to be on metal in order to move, which would also keep them from leaving the city, uh, which the Daleks had not addressed earlier. So even if they got their radiation drugs, if they rely on the metal, then they couldn't move outside the city. <laughs> yeah. And they, they mention uh, that it's kind of like bumper cars at the yeah. amusement park, which is, uh, I don't think they did that in the TV show. Um, but it's a I good point. Recall, but yeah, it's true. Uh, so they realize all they need is an insulator on the floor to keep a Dalek from being able to move. And oh, well, guess what? The Susan has this plastic cape from the thaw, though it's not, you know, it's not plastic at all in the movie. <laughs> they need something to blind the Dalek. They make a change here. If you remember the TV show, Barbara realizes, I think it was Susan's shoes had mud on them. And she used the mm, mud from the shoes. Yeah. In this case, not unrealistic. She uses the food that's been delivered by the Daleks. So it's like some peas or potatoes or something that she's going to gonna yeah, use. Yeah, I was trying to figure it, it could be like refried beans because yeah. what, what they end up using is kind of light brown. It's, it's not very appetizing. <laughs> uh, so they wait until a Dalek delivers food. And <laughs> the funny thing is, I swear, it looked like it was delivering pizzas every time it delivered food. <laughs> it's box. It looked like a pizza box. And uh, so, you know, they wait till the Dalek comes in to deliver food. Ian puts a lighter down to block the door from closing, which is also true to the TV show. They take the food. The Dalek backs out. But then the door can't close because of the lighter. And the Dalek freaks out. And that's the first half of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's going to get better after this. Actually, it kind of does, but we'll maybe. see. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so the doors bounce back open because of the lighter. And the Dalek enters. He demands to know what's happening. 
And Barbara takes the refried beans and smears his eye with them. So suddenly he's blind and he starts crying for help. Uh, and it's it's kind of uh, pitiable because he's just really panicking. You know, help me. Just, uh, I can't see and so forth. You know. So they get him maneuvered onto the cloak that's been laid down on the floor. The one thing I will say about the movie is that they're really incompetent at this, and it takes them forever to get them onto the cloak. But at least appreciated <laughs> it wasn't like some perfect execution. Oh, yeah, that was uh, that was realistic. And as soon as it's onto the cloak, uh, the suit shuts down. Then they move the suit off the cloak, and it doesn't restart. And then the creature inside seems to be dead or stunned or out of action at any rate. So... Whatever cutting off the electric supply does to these suits, um, apparently, is pretty... Uh, yeah, because that's right. All they did was cover the eye and move it onto the thing. It's not like they, you know, attacked it physically in some ways. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. All they did was cut off the power, and yet yeah. that was enough to render the thing inside operable or... Uh, well, it's it's living inside, so it's not mm. operable. It's... Uh, inactive. There you go. <laughs> Inert. <laughs> anyway, Ian reaches in there and wraps up the Dalek in the in the cloak uh, and lays it on the floor, and he crawls into the suit. And as I've mentioned in other episodes in the past, it probably smells terrible in there. <laughs> but he doesn't complain. Also, um, you know, I mentioned. I mean, at this point. I mean, they've replicated the TV show a lot, but they also had a lot of differences, especially early on. At this point, we pretty much go into the TV show, except compressed, right? Because the TV show was some seven episodes or something, and they're doing, yeah. they're doing this all in a very short movie. It's, what, an hour and 20 minutes. One benefit of the movie is that they're able to cover every single plot point at <laughs> the last half without all the padding that was in the Dalek story. There was so much oh, padding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that did not escape my notice uh, <laughs> that they, it, it's it's uh, actually a very good uh, vindication of what I've been saying all along, that there's a, a whole lot of Padding and Doctor Who. <laughs> yes, you, you were the discoverer of padding and Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's funny that nobody ever noticed it before that. <laughs> anyway, he ends in the Dalek, Dalek suit now, Dalek, however you pronounce it. And now he has a Dalek voice. Uh, you know, it's got that mechanical. Yeah, which implies that a Dalek has a normal voice. (laughs) (laughs) And for whatever, you know, I guess to scare people, which is reasonable, they they convert all Dalek voices. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's it's just to foster a sense of unity. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like one of those communist uh, propaganda type things. (laughs) We are all equal here. Mm -hmm. Susan leads the whole group the way that the Daleks led her before when mm-hmm. they were taking her out back to the woods. And as they leave, we briefly see this webbed reptilian claw emerge from under the cloak on the floor, but it doesn't look very active. It looks like <laughs> it might be in its last twitches. Well, it, it is funny because you can tell the person acting it, you know, is hand in there is just like, 
okay, sit here for 30 seconds and move the hand up and down, right? Because it doesn't move forward. It just sits there and sort of pulses for 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although in a way, it's it's effective because it gives you the impression that it's like in its yeah. last throws. And, and this is pretty much identical to the TV show. They did the same thing, you know, slightly different yeah. design of the hand, but yeah. Right. So they get to a, uh, a guarded elevator. Um, and Ian, using his Dalek voice, he claims <laughs> that the prisoners are being transferred so the guard is going to check on that order, make sure it's legitimate. I don't know why he would bother, uh, because there's no reason to suspect <laughs> anything is amiss, but uh, that's in the story, so we'll go with it. But then Susan causes a fake distraction. She causes a ruckus. I won't go over and all that. And uh, So Ian asked the guard to help him get them into the elevator room. So the guard helps. Ian as a Dalek, yeah. Yeah, yeah. After they're all securely in there, the guard finds out that there really was no order. So he was right to check. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, inside the elevator room, Ian uh, is stuck in the Dalek suit. The guard sets off an alarm. Ian's still trying to get out. Everybody else is trying to pry the lid off of it. And then another Dalek comes with a welding torch to cut open the door. Uh, just like we saw 20 years later in uh, Aliens. <laughs> and also, I mean, this whole sequence is exactly the TV show, right? I mean, they basically make no changes. Mm -hmm. And they're cutting open the door, and Ian's still stuck in there. And they try to wheel him into the elevator, but the suit keeps getting stuck on the gap. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which is like a two-millimeter gap or whatever. <laughs> I was kind of wondering how Daleks get onto the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe they have a, an ability to lower it an inch if they mm -hmm. have to. I don't know. But finally, the cutting through the door part is almost almost done, and it's clear that Ian still isn't getting out of the chute, so the other three head on up. He keeps struggling with it. And the Daleks get through the door, and instantly, as soon as they come in, they, they shoot Ian with their fire extinguisher. <laughs> it's not, again, not the negative thing, it's fire extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, that causes a little explosion around the dome head area of the suit. Uh, they pop the top off of it, and the suit is empty, and they see the elevator panel showing the lights going up. And Ian had managed to get out just in time. So they call the elevator back down, uh, but they're not quick enough. Uh, it gets up to the top and holds there just long enough for Ian to make a quick exit. So all of our heroes are together in the room upstairs now. And then from this room, the doctor, he looks through a sheet of visqueen, mm -hmm. just clear plastic. <laughs> Which is an improvement on the TV show. Do you remember they all went up to the window on the TV show and they were all like bounding their fists against it, but there was no window, like they were miming it. <laughs> so, oh. you know, at least here they actually have a, a kind of opaque uh, window that he's looking through. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't remember that part. But, uh, yeah, this is obviously just just a sheet of clear, uh, you know, clear, flexible plastic. And he sees that the thaws are arriving to the trap. And I looked it up uh, because I've heard of, you know, for years and years, uh, I've 
known of the existence of Visqueen. It turns out that it was invented by a company called Visking, hence the name <laughs> Visqueen. Uh, and they originally made sausage casings. So, so you're saying they could have eaten small. the window. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> or they could have wrapped something in the window at yeah. least and then eaten whatever was in it. The Dalek finally goes up in the elevator after it has returned down to him. <laughs> and then uh, I think it was a statue, like some modern art thing. In yeah, the I mer- yeah, there was a there was like a polystyrene art piece that they and we commented on that at the time so which is yeah. you know it's different and interesting but this is totally plausible there's nothing wrong with the fact that they take a piece of machinery and do it but yeah it's a it's a big heavy looks like a computer console that's sitting right next to the elevator and the four of them work together and push it down the elevator shaft and uh, so the upshot is the same as it was in the tv hmm. show the elevator doesn't come up The Thals enter the city, which is to say the building, (laughs) and uh, they come inside, and the Daleks have stacked up many, many cases of food in the control room. Here, I'm going to point out a huge difference. If you recall, I I mentioned that they had a really cool shot in the TV show where like four or five Daleks were there, and they all backed up into these little cubicles so you couldn't see them, and they all backed up at the Mm -hmm. same time, and it was a nice little coordinated action. Here they have one Dalek that backs up into a cubicle. So they were emulating it, but they didn't do that shot with a bunch of them doing it. It's like, why didn't you have all these Daleks? Why didn't you do the cool shot? But they they just didn't do it. Yeah. It's entirely possible they just never actually watched the television. That, that seems plausible. <laughs> so, yes. so one thaw goes ahead of the group into the Dalek control room. And he's checking out the stacks of food crates. And meanwhile, the doctor and the others, they managed to force doors open. And these doors just happen to go into the Dalek control room. And the doctor enters just in time to yell, it's a trap. <laughs> Wait, is it, that's the uh, Admiral Akbar thing, right? <laughs> Admiral Akbar, yeah. It's a trap. <laughs> yeah. So, again, Star Wars uh, mm-hmm. stole something else from Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> so all the Thals flee, and the upshot is that only one of them ends up dead. So they made out pretty well compared to what the Daleks yeah. had in mind. So they get back to the TARDIS, uh, and, and the Doctor and his group managed to g- escape with the, the Thals. And the fellows are baffled by this betrayal because they're a peaceful people. (laughs) I think uh, certainly the TV show, maybe here too, it's been like 500 years since they interacted with the Daleks. So they don't have no idea what they're like, right? Right. They're stunned by all this and they, they don't want to fight the Daleks because the last war was so devastating that they don't want another. It's all... The doctor wishes them good luck with that, and they say their goodbyes. The our crew, our heroes, get in the TARDIS <laughs> in, um, the, in the gymnasium room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, we we get a brief glimpse of the Daleks uh, planning a test of the drugs on a small group of their workers. <laughs> Well, only responsible to test the drug out on some of your colleagues before. <laughs> no, sure. The doctor and the rest of them, they try to get the TARDIS moving, and it isn't working. 
And that's one of the curse to them. Oops, that fluid. Might be. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, I'm thinking, like, it's so weird. It's like, oh, yeah, you didn't, you know, the Daleks had taken the fluid link from him in the first few minutes of the show. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to do the embarrassing thing, having already said their goodbye. Oh, God, there's <laughs> nothing worse. Than have you ever been in that situation? <laughs> oh, sorry, our car didn't work. We're now back at the Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> we can all... <laughs> oh, I think I left my gloves in here. <laughs> so they get re- reacquainted with the Thals, but the Thals still won't fight, even to retrieve the fluid link. Then we get to see the fate of the Dalek workers. Apparently, the test didn't take too long. Mm-hmm. They're messed up and out of control. We know that because they're saying, out of control. <laughs> <laughs> there was a Dalek in the original show, if you recall, who was, like, spinning around at some point and, and you know, going on of it. So it was pretty funny. But they don't have that in this one. Yeah, it's, it's, I, think, I think the show wasn't quite as subdued as it is here. It's just, <laughs> it's just sort of low-key here. But in the show, I think it was a lot more chaotic. I think there might have even been in the, the implication in the show that they were in some awful pain or something. Yeah. I it's been long enough that I don't recall. But, yeah, it's it's... Yet another thing where the TV show, I think, was a little better. Well, as, as I mentioned previously, uh, I think we're at the point where we need to restart the podcast. <laughs> watch Early ones again now that we've forgotten them. <laughs> well, uh, enjoy your solo podcast. <laughs> it turns out that the drugs that work on the Thals don't work on the Daleks. And so the Supreme Dalek goes to plan B which is blow up another neutron bomb, just like the ones that ended the war, to increase the radiation levels outside further so that they're beyond even what the Thals can survive with their drugs. Back at the little Thal camp that sprung up around the TARDIS, we see the doctor looking at a polyhedron with writing on it. And, uh, the Thal records, it turns out, they go back about a half million years. And the doctor comes up with a little brainstorm, and he tells Ian to grab one of the Thaw women to offer her to the Daleks <laughs> as a trade for the fluid link. He winks at Ian to indicate it's a, he's just doing a shtick here because, because Ian's a little hesitant at first. Um, but when he winks, Ian plays along. And as Ian starts to drag the lady away, the Thaw leader fights back. He gives Ian a good old punch. Uh, and the doctor says, see, <laughs> you will fight. And so this is also okay. exactly out of the TV show, but I'm going to say there's an execution difference. Again, the TV show, this was much more dramatic, where here it's just kind of silly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it makes the doctor's point anyway. Yeah. Uh, and we briefly go back to the Dalek control room. Uh, the bob- bomb is going to be ready in one hour, they say. So the Thals are starting to plan a strategy to invade the city, now that they've been convinced that they actually will fight. There's a swamp. The The city on three sides is accessible by climbing up rocks. Uh, on the fourth side, there's a deadly swamp full of mutants. Um, and the, the Thals have lost three people in the past there. 
but Ian's going to lead a team through the swamp, which is, you know, he seems a little reluctant at first, but uh, he warms up to it fast enough. And Ian, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the actor's a nice guy, but uh, mm-hmm. boy, he's no, he's no TV Ian. Yeah, <laughs> William Russell is. The, so he's going to lead a yeah. team through the swamp. And the Daleks, meanwhile, uh, once once all the groups, or once the swamp group starts approaching the city, they know of it. They know they're coming, but they say they're going to die. They're not concerned about it. They won't make it through the swamp. So the group gets into the swamp and they rest. Uh, Ian does something that I definitely would not do in his situation. <laughs> yeah, he says he needs he needs a wash, which is understandable. I don't like to get all grimy either, but. Uh, he bends down to one of these swamp puddles. He washes his face in it. Then he opens his eyes underwater. Uh, so I'm thinking he's probably consigned himself to both typhoid and pink eye here. <laughs> and his eyes widen as they're open in the water. And he pulls his head up and he says, I saw a great big thing in the water. <laughs> now, he probably should have been more clear about what the great big thing was. Oh, and this is a part where I, I wanted to see, oh, they're going into the swamp. Surely they'll give us a glimpse of that swamp monster, because they had a cool little swamp monster in the yeah. TV well, show. Not only did they have the monster, do you remember, and this will be in a couple of minutes, they had the really nice special effect shot of the water sort of swirling and everything when one of the guys was next to it, and they don't have any of that in this. They just, yeah, so again, mm. the TV show with, with 10 cents to spend did way more <laughs> impressive special <laughs> effects in this whole sequence. Yeah. So they spot some pipes uh, under some nearby water that are leading to toward the city, and they realize this must be how the Daleks pump in their drinking water, so they figure if they follow the pipes, they'll get to the city. One of the Thals, named Elion, he stays behind to get water, apparently from the very same pool that Ian saw the great big thing in. And predictably he gets got right and this um, is the difference and, this is what i was talking about that special effect where in the tv show they did this composition shot where there was this huge whirlpool and in the movie <laughs> there's just some bubbles coming up from the yeah. water yeah. they are vigorous bubbles but <laughs> yeah it's a it's still not a terribly expensive effect so the survivors, there's four of them. There were five in the group originally until Elyon met his doom. The other four, they reach a mountain with the pipes going all the way up the side. It's pretty steep, but it's climbable. So they climb it. <laughs> well, I will say this mountain is clearly their big special effect. Like They keep coming back to this shot because they've got a map shot of sort of desert behind them and a planet in, you know, a moon or a planet in the background. And they keep coming back to the shots like, this is our big science fiction shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is pretty, pretty yeah. nice. It, you know, it's a nice matte painting. And all four get to the top safely. You know, they do a couple little uh, movie tricks to make you think somebody's going to bite the dust, but they don't. In the city, the Supreme Dalek recaps his plan, and this is where we see all the Dalek budget, uh, because they've got, you know, rows and rows of Daleks lined up to listen to him. (laughs) Yeah. And he's talking about his brilliant neutron bomb plan, and uh, and they have a chorus of, uh, destroy the Thals. Uh, It's like a team building thing, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a pep rally. (laughs) So now, after 
our heroes have gotten to the top of the mountain. The pipes lead into a cave. And one of the Thals and Totus, he looks nervous, and he refuses to go on. But he should have done that before he got into the cave, because uh, now that they're in the cave, uh, and Gennadis, the other guy, punches him, that's enough to start a cave-in. <laughs> Punching the guy standing next to you starts a cave-in. This is true to the TV show. We also had to cave in there. But I will give them, you remember, you commented on the styrofoam walls in the TV show. They have, they're not, they're more plasticky. I'm not sure what they are, but these are much better rock walls in the movie than they were in the TV show. Yeah. So they're one point for the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you remember how much I hated this sequence of, you know, them running and jumping oh. and we're about to get to. And they cover all of that in the movie, but again, in about one tenth of the time. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they tighten it up a good bit. We quickly cut to the Thal camp, uh, and we see that the doctor has been supposed to watch some cakes cooking over the fire, and uh, he didn't watch them, so they're burned now. And then he sees uh, some Thal women using mirrors, and he asks if there are but more. Mirror, I mean, it's really kind of a crystal, you know. That Yeah, they look like sheets of mica or something yeah. like that. But he asks if there are more, so he's he's brewing some kind of plot here. Back in the cave, the group follows the pipes, and they come to a narrow but deep chasm, just as we had in the TV show. And is in the TV show, by narrow, I mean probably less than a yard across. <laughs> <laughs> so the three of them get across after there's some hullabaloo with uh, tying a rope to each other, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah, it's actually impressive. Literally, they do all the beats of the TV show, but in like three minutes instead of 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they, they make pretty short work of it. So Ian and Barbara and uh, Gennatis, they all get across. The last guy, Antotis, who is the guy who wanted to turn tail and run, he finally... Is the last to make the jump, and he flubs it, and he falls down. Uh, the rope, the rope rescues him, but the rope's attached to Ian, so Ian's pulled over the edge. He's holding on with his hands, and you know the other two are trying to pull him up. Meanwhile, we see uh, the main force of the Thals approaches the city, and at the base of those rock ledges, the ones we talked about earlier, where Susan had to climb down them to get back to the forest. At the base of those ledges, they start shining mirrors to confuse the security system. They're reflecting beams onto it. The Daleks in their headquarters, they notice what's going on, and they call these people fools. Uh, that's not going to make any difference. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, the rock ledge outside starts sliding open. It's actually, uh, it's actually on tracks, and it's concealing some other... Thing. And I will give the movie this. I think this is one of the more impressive visuals and unexpected visuals of the movie that wasn't in the TV show. So here's one thing yeah. they did that I think looked better. Than yeah, the TV show. it wasn't wasn't bad. I mean, you know, it's it's not a huge gap. If somebody just wanted to still get up to the city, they just have to run around it and climb up the other ledges. But, <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a fun little effect anyway. So yeah, points for that. So they, they're at the base of these rocks that they can't climb now, and the Daleks tell them not to move. 
So everyone moves, <laughs> and we'll find out in a moment what happens to them. Meanwhile, in the cave, the guy hanging on the rope, uh, Antotus, he uh, heroically cuts his rope loose so he won't drag down in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's okay. He lands on a ledge below and says, <laughs> help me up. And in the TV show, I'm about 95% certain that he died. No, he did. Show. So, that, yeah, they, again, it's a weird case where the movie <laughs> boulderizing something from... From the TV show. And yeah, they're all like, oh, nothing happened to him. Great. You know, yeah, it's just, I mean, so basically his sacrifice meant nothing. That's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it earned him some street cred, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> so we got through that whole scene a lot faster than the TV <laughs> Meanwhile, in the Dalek control room, we find out that everyone got away except the doctor and Susan. Uh, all the other Thals managed to retreat into the woods. And now the neutron bomb countdown begins from 100, which I think is just where they began counting in the TV show. As I recall in the TV show, they actually do go from 100 to 1. <laughs> I don't, they don't do that here, but in the TV show it was like, yes, we're actually going to do this full countdown. <laughs> Uh, the rest of the Thals are around the TARDIS, and they're frustrated. And the guy who before had said, we won't fight, uh, now he's giving everybody a pep talk. And he says, we can fight. <laughs> so that's what's going to happen in the near future. Back in the control room, the doctor tries to use the secrets of the TARDIS to bargain for the Thals' lives. You know, he can travel through space and time. It's only been tested once, but he's feels good about it i guess (laughs) that's another thing you know we already mentioned that he's an inventor not mainly well i'm just kidding it's why would you do this it's so much less interesting oh i know we can either have this guy be part of an alien race that he escaped from with his granddaughter you know in a time machine or we could just have him be a, a piddling inventor in a British countryside. I know we'll go with you. Know, <laughs> yeah, I it's I think it's likely that this was marketed. I could be wrong, but it was probably marketed as a movie for children. You know, bring the family, like a Disney movie, mm. that type of thing. I don't know. Anyway. They try to bargain for the Thals' lives. I'll I'll tell you how the TARDIS works if you'll let them live. (laughs) And the Daleks uh, do exactly what they did in the show, and they say, eh, don't bother, we'll figure it out. Yep. Well, they probably could. That's the miserable thing. You remember is uh, one of the recent medieval ones, uh, Marco Polo, I guess, where he's like, oh, you know, the— you know, the wizards will figure out your TARDIS, right? So it's kind of the same, <laughs> the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although the Daleks would have a better chance of it because we find <laughs> out it in one of the later episodes that they actually do have their TARDIS equivalent. Yeah. So the group that's in the cave and jumped over the chasm and all that, they've arrived at an inner entrance to the city but it's blocked by a cage door. Fortunately, it's the worst designed cage door ever <laughs> because Barbara just has to reach through the bars and press the button that's on the other side of <laughs> yeah, the door. Yeah, we never thought of that. <laughs> but the Daleks do detect the intruders, so they know that they're in the facility now. And a single guard pursues them, but they escape in an elevator. And at this point, the countdown has gotten down to 29. 
And this is when the main thaw force arrives. And they're on, they arrive on the same floor that the cave group has taken the elevator to. And they save them because when a guard comes in, they lasso the guard and they slingshot him into the elevator shaft. <laughs> yeah. That actually was good. I don't yeah. remember that from no, the, from Yeah, the that's unique show. to this, and it's a pretty good shot. Yeah. Hopefully, I don't know if there was an actor in the in the Dalek when they did that. But, you know. <laughs> That'd be a good ride anyway. I mean, one of the things I didn't mention earlier, but the, you know, way earlier, there's a point where a Dalek shows up with a blowtorch, right, to blowtorch through the door. And right. he's just moving along with the other Dalek right next to him and with the blowtorch going and then goes up. And you're like, yeah, this is 1960s safety regulations, right? Like, they were like, oh, you can't have another character two inches away from you while you're holding a blowtorch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess they just assumed that the other guy would know the blowtorch was on. <laughs> Reasonable enough. So now the countdown's at 23. We only got 23 seconds left, and uh, needless to say, it's going to take more than 23 seconds to get to the final seconds of the countdown. But eh, the suspense is building anyway. The Thals uh, maneuver some Daleks into shooting each other. They just basically grab them and rotate them so they're facing each other just as they're firing. Everyone rushes the control room. And it turns out that just pushing a Dalek into a wall is enough to destroy the Dalek <laughs> suit. So that's a handy thing to know. Uh, meanwhile, the countdown is at 12 now. And we see Ian is standing right next to the countdown panel, but he can't figure out how to deactivate it. Uh, <laughs> doctor yells at him to, to stop the countdown. Uh, the countdown gets to five. Ian yells, Daleks! <laughs> and they turn to shoot him, but he ducks and they hit the computer instead, mm -hmm. which stops the neutron bomb countdown. And suddenly, for no apparent reason, they're all dead. Now, I think it may be because shooting the computer cut off the electricity. And as we've seen from the, from the guard that they waylaid earlier, when the electricity to the sheets is cut off, um, that either kills or very nearly kills the Daleks mm. inside. So, so that's, uh, that was easy enough. <laughs> Just get the Daleks to shoot their own electrical source. Countdown is stopped at three, and Ian says, that's my lucky number. <laughs> Which, pretty sure that was not in the television show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the Thals gather at the TARDIS, and they give everyone a souvenir camouflage cloak. <laughs> our, our heroes get back into the machine, and the doctor <laughs> By machine, we mean the gymnasium floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the hobbyist's room in the basement. Yeah. The doctor gives Ian the privilege of pushing the lever, uh, deliberately this time, not stumbling against it and triggering it accidentally. And the doctor says, well, we're here. I mean, it's just instantaneous. Or yeah, there's no, nearly. the camera doesn't shake. There's no sound. You know, it's like you, <laughs> you change the light switch. You're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So Ian opens the door and... Running right at him is a whole legion of Roman soldiers. <laughs> so he goes back inside and closes the door. And you won't remember this, but in the far future, there's actually one of the episodes of the TV show that this is very relevant to. But anyway. <laughs> mm, okay. 
<laughs> so Ian closes the door, and instantly, having seen these approaching Roman soldiers, he goes full Jerry Lewis. I mean, he's just <laughs> babbling, he's messing with random things, pushing the activation lever, you know, just just tweaking random controls. Not something you would want to do with a time machine, I would think, but uh, he's trying it. And finally, he just yells to the doctor, well, do something. <laughs> and that's the end. I know. I, um, I get Honestly, so the end credit thing showed up, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it was just so weird. <laughs> yeah. There, there's no dramatic ending to that at all. There's no, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, worth watching. Well, okay, let's. <laughs> Are you saying it's worth watching? Huh? <laughs> yeah, All right, well, there you have it. Ron says worth watching. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to find something to talk about here after we've already done. I mean, and well, okay, afterwise, as I said, I like the little girl. This could have been a story with just her and nobody else, and it would have been. 10 times at least better. I don't know. Is there anyone else in the acting uh, ensemble who impressed you? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the, uh, the falls were fine. You know. Yeah. Not nearly <laughs> as sexy as the TV show, right? Cause they didn't have the very uh, revealing pants. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing really stood out acting wise off the top of my head. I, um, you know, I, I already mentioned it, but I'll just say Peter Cushing is great, but his approach was so wrong in this. And if this had been the doctor in the TV show, the TV show would would not have survived, you know, that first yeah. season. I mean, it's way, so it just, it, for all the complaints about William Hartnell as being a jerk and, you know, being sick and, and screwing up his lines, his portrayal of the doctor was so, so compelling Oh, compared yeah. to this, and you can just see the difference, yeah. Yep, yeah, I'm already resolved to hate all future doctors. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd probably agree, but, you know, there are some qualities <laughs> of some of them. None of them are as bad as, well, I don't know. I haven't watched a couple of the modern ones. I've heard some things. We'll never get no. there because we'll be 120 <laughs> or something. <laughs> so that's fine. But, uh, you know, I, it occurred to me once or twice, I wondered if, if Cushing had actually watched Hartnell's performance and was trying to imitate his voice, because he had that kind of semi-high pitch hmm. to his voice. Um, sometimes he did. Uh, but, but yeah, overall, he was just a very... came across very differently. You know, he, he's more the absent-minded, kindly professor. Yeah. You know, whereas, whereas Hartnell certainly could be the absent-minded, kindly professor, but he had a lot of other facets to mm -hmm. him also. Okay. Acting-wise, nothing comes to mind. Do you know, by any chance, did the little girl go on to other roles? or other? Uh, I don't know her total career. She is. I watched some, you know, behind the scenes with her, and, and she seemed like a per you know, she seemed very together, and she was very happy about having done it, so... She wasn't like uh, one of those child actors who becomes, you know, a drug addict and <laughs> robs a store or whatever. So that seemed to go well for her. She's the best thing in the whole thing. I mean, because she's not hamming it up the way the, the adults are. Right. 
And if this was intended to be fully a children's movie, then that makes sense because the kid is the one that the kids want to, you know, identify right. with. I mean, and as she I've was, said, I didn't tend so much, you know, I, I like to see the adults in movies right. when I was a kid. But also, I mean, one of the things she was doing that's really, you know, interesting for a, for a child is she handled highly technical dialogue in a in a really good way, right? It didn't flummox her. Mm-hmm. To have dialogue with a bunch of scientific jargon and all that. I mean, she she was capable of doing all of that, which is why I think they, they chose her for this role. Mm-hmm. They could have gotten someone who was, you know, some more uh, flighty, you know, actor or some, actress and uh, oh, who would sure. have been like the adults and, and, you know, yeah. Although she's not super young either. She's probably, I'd guess, maybe nine or ten, yeah. something like but that. But still, yeah. So story-wise, I mean, the first part where they're introducing the Doctor and the Yummy is just a travesty, but they do eventually basically replicate the story. And as as we said, without (laughs) because it's a short movie, uh, without all the padding that the TV show had. Right. I don't think the Daleks are nearly as menacing in this. I mean, their voices are similar, et cetera, but... I don't know. Hmm. I'd, if they had started with this movie, I don't think the Daleks would have been the sensation that they were from the TV show. Yeah, yeah, probably not. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's Now, granted, I'll say that I, I have always had a problem. Once I get used to one version of something, I have a built-in prejudice yeah. against whatever the next version. I mean, there's some exceptions where... You know, somebody releases a cover of a song, and I'm like, oh, well, that's really good. But generally, somebody releases a cover of a song, and like, <laughs> ah, that sucks. Why did you bother? It may be that some portion of my lack of fondness for the movie is because I'm already prejudiced towards Hardnell and gang. <laughs> that said, I, th- I think we've talked enough to illustrate some very significant overall flaws throughout the movie that are just uh, uh, it just really isn't as good as the televised story arc aside from being more concise if you were in danger watching the movie (laughs) letting you know watch the TV show instead even though it's you know it has many flaws and you can go back and listen to our discussion of that yeah i just i can't let it's just i think it's an abomination and what they did to the characters and you know again barbara is such an important character in the show here you could remove her absolutely nothing would change you wouldn't notice it in the slightest even ian you know ian stumbles into things a couple times and moves the story forward but you could remove him and there'd be nothing. You could remove the doctor and there'd be nothing. That's why I say it's basically a Susan story. And if they had done a Susan story, it would have been way better. Oh, yeah. She's really the only person who impacts the story um, <laughs> other than the Daleks. So, yeah, unless you want to compare it to the show, you know, I think we're saying don't don't bother with this one. <laughs> not, not worth watching. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting historical curiosity, and uh, if you're thinking of becoming a movie maker, um, you probably should watch it so you know how not to adapt an already (laughs) cherished property, or an already popular property, at least. 
I don't know that it was cherished yet at this time. <laughs> well, and this made a bunch of money, so they made another one, uh, which was a mm. remake of the Dalek Invasion of Earth, which, you know, is, is a story I really like, even though some people like Toby does not. <laughs> but uh, and I think you didn't like it as much as, yeah. as I did. It, it had its good moments. So we'll see. But well, I, will, I, I think I was just angry at it because that's where Susan leaves, right? It is, but also, once again, you were annoyed at the Daleks' plan, right? Because you always have a problem with oh. the Daleks' plan. Like, I think, oh, yeah, yeah, because it, at the end, the one the where they were going to turn the Earth into a big old hot rod. Yeah, which I think is great, and you're like, no, that's a terrible plan. I'm like, wait, I think <laughs> flying the Earth through the universe is a great idea. <laughs> but, uh, uh. yeah, um, so... But I will say this. So, and watch it because they have a the making of for this is a combined making of for this movie and the next movie. And I'm going to be at least cautiously optimistic because it looked like the next movie might be a lot more interesting. Well, at some point, we're going to have to check it out. Well, that's going to be our next one because we're going to do both of these before we get out of here. Sorry. (laughs) So, in case you were, yeah, okay. So, I'm sorry you're surprised (laughs) by that. But, yeah. So, next week, we'll we'll see. All right. See what we think. And it's like, I don't remember the exact title. It's like Doctor and the Daleks 2150 or something, or the dog, you know. Yeah, it's Invasion of Earth 2150 AD or something. Of course, now it would be 2150 CE. So here's the funny thing on BritBox. I couldn't find these movies, and I finally realized it's because the movies do not spell out doctor. Like all the TV shows and everything, doctor is a full word, right? The movies ah. have it as DR, period. So if you if you search on Doctor Who and the Daleks with doctor being a full word, you won't find it. <laughs> so, ah. Hmm. Okay, so we shall see what happens in 2150 and if we like it a little better uh, than this one. So join us next week. (laughs) Uh, So, um... I feel bad because I'm so for like the ever since I started this, I've been trying to figure out uh, started the stop motion. I've been trying to figure out in Final Cut Pro how to do this thing, which is when you have a green screen, because the thing is when you got a green screen, the colors change, and sometimes things like in this case the um, the TARDIS gets interpreted as green, and so the TARDIS has all the green screen stuff on it. Huh. And, you know, there's all these different settings. You try to fix it. But all I wanted was a feature where I could just say this portion of the screen, don't apply green screen to it. Right. It's a all very right. simple concept. But it isn't there. I mean, it really should be, but it's not there. There's no feature for that. Um, and I think I knew this a long time ago, but I forgot. And it turns out what you do, if you want to do this, is you take a, you make a clip of the portion of the shot you know that you want to do this with you copy it you paste the clip above it and then mask out in the clip above it the portion um that you don't want green screened so it allows Mm. everything below it to come through except the portion that you masked out so it, it has the effect that i wanted it's a little complex but um 
you know, at least and now and I'll probably when I finish this episode, I'll probably go through and redo some of the previous scenes now that I have this technique to avoid some of the green screen problems. But um, it also allows me to have green like, for example, the character I was using from your set who's leading the horse. He's an archer who's wearing green. So that green, of course, causes a problem when you're doing the green uh-huh. screen stuff. But the fact that I can mask out that whole portion of the screen and say don't apply green screen means he can wear green. So, you know, those. Oh, very good. <laughs> anyway, these little things. Well, that should uh, improve your mm-hmm. workflow some. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and this is one of the that last scene. I, you know, there's things I wish I could improve, but it just comes back to we'll never finish this goddamn thing. If <laughs> yeah, I've already spent a lot of time on that particular scene, and that's only like 35 seconds, you know. Um, and the next scene, as I said, is a very talky scene. It's going to be minutes and minutes of talking. So. Oh, yeah. And I had to build the interior, and the interior comes just like the exterior. The interior comes back in multiple episodes, right? Because every time they mm. sit in the inside of a way station. Um, so it needs to be a repeatable interior, but at least now I have a better concept of like making it modular. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I always understood I need to make it modular, but now I understand much better. Like every wall has to be movable, <laughs> et cetera, which oh, yeah. we talked before is how TV shows and movies work, right? The entire mm-hmm. wall can be removed so you can put the camera there and I have to be able to do the same thing. Right. Um, so at least now I have an idea how to do that. Hmm. I mentioned I sent you those plants that I built from a plant set. Yeah. And I think they'll work really well for the hanging garden and, you know, Kublai Khan oh, sure. palace and all that. Yep. Of course, the funny thing is I put in all these time on the backgrounds, like on the walls in the courtyard or whatever. And, you know, there's this blurry thing you can't even see in the background. <laughs> <laughs> That's one reason. I mean, so at the end of this scene, I just said, you know, I had this kind of long shot of just the the – building and the TARDIS and it both establishes mm-hmm. that the TARDIS is sitting out the inside the building, but it also it's like here's this building. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> oh, this is Mardi Gras, right? So um Yeah, make, I didn't uh, end up getting my Sazerac ingredients. Um, so I've got a Got a glass of Aperol here I'm going to sip on. <laughs> okay. You fool! 